Hello and welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport. We bring in guests who are experts in their field in sport and in law and get them to talk about and share their experiences and their personal stories. Our special guest today is Gareth Farrelly, a former international football player, lawyer and arbitrator. During his playing career, he represented the Republic of Ireland and Premier League sides Aston Villa, Everton and Bolton. Post-retirement, he's retrained as a lawyer and Gareth is a member of the Football Association's Judicial Panel and a member of Sports Resolution's Independent Panel of Arbitrators and Mediators. In 2019, he was appointed as an arbitrator at the Court of Arbitration for Sport And he also sits as a Premier League match delegate, helping review and support Premier League referees. I asked Gareth to come onto the podcast because his story is one that is emotive, powerful and inspiring. It involves seeking high performance inside and outside of sport, fighting life-threatening illness and finding out that the people that you trusted as a player did not always have your best interest at heart. Finally, it's about how you use all of that to help former players and athletes from following the same fate as you did. It's a wonderful story, inspiring as I mentioned before. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a real privilege to interview Gareth about his career and his experiences. There's so much in this. hope you enjoy it. And remember, if you like what we do, please do tell people. If you like the podcast, please do take the time to rate us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, or whatever you're listening to. Importantly, please do take the time to share it with people who you think will find this interesting. It really would mean a lot. So wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, thanks for tuning in. Hope you have a wonderful day and uh, enjoy the show. Firstly, thanks, Gareth, for, for popping in. No, it's taken us a few years to get here, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah so. <laughs> it really has. We've been talking about this for some time. Now, I've had the pleasure of um, obviously getting to know you over the years. Uh, uh, firstly, at, I think meeting at various sports law conferences, normally complaining at the back of the room <laughs> about various things. But having the pleasure of seeing you qualify as a solicitor um, and speak with you, actually, on a, on a couple of occasions now at various conferences or... Um, in an academic setting one of the things before we get into what's going on now can you talk about why as a professional football player you played at the highest level why on earth did you decide to get into law and I think this story is such an exceptional story law football they're obviously life it's all intrinsically linked I think the easiest place to start is obviously 12 years ago I, I got I got sick I had um a stomach aneurysm on the M40, and was extremely fortunate to live. I'm here having a conversation with you, basically down to can the. You, can you just talk about that, like you know, because I think you've achieved so much post career that is, is I, I would be very happy with your career that you've achieved post your football career, right? But you obviously had a very successful football career as well. But I think that what happened to you and the consequences of that afterwards is quite significant. So I just think to, to put it into context for people, you're on the M. 40, yeah, say? first part, and again, thank you, unwarranted, but post-career is still, I'm still learning, I'm still evolving, I'm obviously um, 
very very fortunate to do what I do now because I've managed to find something that I like but I'm extremely um, keen and hungry to become elite in another sector and I think that doing all right so far I said we said on Twitter earlier though but if Lord Dyson is praising you for your for, for your diligence and the quality of your work when you sat with him on the Peter Beersley case and you know, mentioned it in the previous podcast you're obviously moving in the right direction I think any lawyer would uh, be very proud of having someone of Lord Dyson's experience and and quality to to actually praise you for your work. So oh, absolutely, and it, and it doesn't get it doesn't get any better than that. But there's also the the contradiction in that is the fact that at no time in my footballing career would I have given any contemplation to the prospect that I would have been sitting on a football panel with Lord Dyson. So that shows you how kind of my life has kind of moved on, if you like, with regards to where that started. Would be. Um, 30th of April 2007 2008 where are we at now it'll be 13 Uh, years I think because this is the thing as time goes by you forget you forget the dates but with regards to my illness it was my I remember the date as it was my it was my daughter's birthday and I was I was still playing football I was at Cork City at the time I was injured I had a knee injury and I was going to Bournemouth to see a friend who was a physio with regards to taking some rehab with a view to returning to playing so we had birthday cake in the house we blew the candles out kissed my wife and my daughter goodbye and then headed headed for Bournemouth I was going to be there for maybe two or three days and driving down the M40 sat in the car as we all do on hands-free speaking to friends lots of different conversations and then as I got closer to Warwick if you like I just started to feel ill in the car and as we all do amateur amateur doctor I was trying to think, <coughs> this makes little sense. I had a brown pitta, a brown chicken salad pitta from my lunch. I wasn't expecting an impact like this, but I had to say on the phone call, apologies, I'm going to have to go. I pulled into the hard shoulder on the motorway and got out of the car. And as I got out of the car, I started to vomit blood. So again, you're looking at this and thinking, no, no, this isn't good, not normal. But I, I managed to sit at the front of the car and I started to feel really, really lightheaded as if I was going to pass out. So I managed to phone emergency services and they came. They had to find me on the motorway. I was, from the moment I phoned for an ambulance, the care I had was just was, was incredible. So basically an ambulance arrived with the police. Um, they could see that I wasn't obviously looking too good. They transferred me into uh, Warwick Hospital police were amazing as well they took my car parked the car in the hospital car park and basically I didn't vomit again without getting into too much detail blood but I was basically passing blood and it wasn't like you coming from your boxing background where it wasn't like a bit of bit of red it was like quite serious but I was really really lucky because the um, specialist who was on call that day was on call once a month gastroenterologist gastroenterologist um, Jeremy Sherman, he recognised it was obviously an issue. I had an, an endoscopy. I was being watched on a ward whilst I was still struggling. And then he said, there's something in your stomach that it's going to have to be sorted out. So there's a friend of mine who's a top surgeon in Walsgrave Hospital in Coventry, and I'm going to transfer you to him if that's okay. So I was like, yeah, absolutely, please. So again, family things, trying to sort things out. I got transferred to Walsgrave. I had a CT scan. 
where they looked and they said, there's something in your stomach, we're going to have to take it out. Then they came back to me urgently and said, we're, we're going to have to do it quite quickly. And I ended up having emergency surgery. So the long story short of that is I had a, an aneurysm of the splenic artery. And w- what had saved me was that with aneurysms, obviously, they're fatal because of the nature of them, but also people may struggle to identify where the aneurysm's taken place, primarily brain, aorta, different things like that. But what had happened with me was the aneurysm had got a, a bubble in it and my organs had partly acted as a tourniquet to give them an opportunity to be able to identify where it was and then to go in and fix it. So we talk about, it's a it's a positive story now because here, here having the conversation with you, but my organs were damaged. I had lost 20% of my stomach, 40% of my pancreas. I lost all of my spleen and part of my colon. So I had three days in intensive care. My temperature wouldn't regulate. I had two blood transfusions. I had three weeks stay in hospital. And then overall, I would have had a, a nine-month recovery. But as a, I was still a footballer. So at that time, my my thought and my priority was, how can I, how can I return to football? I just wanted to play football. If you give me a big introduction, but the point is I would look back upon my football career as one of underachievement with the ability I had. And after my illness, I just wanted to be able to get back and do it again. And so then what happened? I was fortunate. A friend of mine was employed at Preston at the time. I went in and I started to do some rehab. Started bench pressing a broom handle. There's more muscles on a pencil. After my illness, I was really, really struggling. So I, I went I went through all of that. So it was... It gave me a focus and then the focus slowly shifted to a point where I was probably fitter than I had been for years and years. But the difficulty for any club was there was always going to look at the medical and say there's a risk associated with him. So I did my rehab at Preston and then I went to Morecambe and I, w- I was loving. I was loving being back. I was loving being back outdoors. I was loving being back playing football. But in the back of my mind, I knew it was unlikely I was going to play at Premier League or Championship level again. I'd made my mistakes in my 20s. So I had started to think about what was I going to do next. And, and so what sort of, uh, you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but so what sort of insurance cover did you have for the for for, for, for dealing with that sort of situation? Bear in mind, when when was, you said this was? Two, when was it? What, what 2000 2007 yeah so so obviously things have moved 2008 it was t- t- things yeah we can clarify the date this <laughs> is how bad i am Th- things have moved on a bit <coughs> since then it was like two, to t- 2008 yes but again this comes back to and it will link into the conversation about the law if you like because as a footballer you're totally absorbed in that particular world you don't really give a lot of thought to the insurance you, you know you're supposedly got insurance in place but at that time I had an insurance policy that had been sold to me that I was basically told if I was hit by a meteorite or a panzer tank there's nothing that the policy wouldn't pay out on but obviously because I'd had an aneurysm the it didn't wasn't covered within the policy so it was a double whammy if you like because I ended up in a situation where the football club I was with at the time didn't want me back and then my insurance, I got informed that my the insurance policy I had wouldn't cover my particular illness. So if I had died, my wife would have got paid. But the reality with me living was that the policy wasn't going to pay out. So my knowledge of... Well, that, must have been, that must have been a stressful environment. That must have been stressful for you to deal with because you're under pressure to get... Yeah, to get back at it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like from a podcast point of view, the way you and I talk all the time and jumping around in the stories, one of the things that happened then was you've obviously you start to think about insurance policy, but then you start to look at all of the other things you had in place 
financial yeah. advisors and people that were supposedly looking after your best interests. And whilst I was recovering from my illness, I had a I had a call at the door from the revenue uh, for a debt, and it was like a considerable debt at that time, and it was a debt I knew nothing about. And it was a debt I had never envisaged that I would have had to pay back based on one of the investments I had been advised to enter while I was playing football. And that was a huge cause for concern. And again, that was probably what made me start to think about, I can't just take what's being said at face value here. I need to try and get a better understanding of what's actually going on. And that led me towards the law. I went to a university in Liverpool at the time and I asked about a, a law degree and the person I met on any given day and we talk about like young lawyers or students and the importance of that in first interaction because that can determine whether you're going to have a positive experience or not I met somebody who was incredibly dismissive of me being a mature student I had somebody who was incredibly dismissive of the fact that I'd been a footballer and advised that I needed to go away for a couple of years give some contemplation to a foundation degree and then I could possibly come back and consider law and that knocked me for six and then I found out about Edge Hill University. I found out about a course they offered, which was called a fast track course. And I went up to an open day. But again, there was probably a degree of trepidation there. And it was the complete opposite. I met two people that said to me at the time, yes, God, absolutely, this is what we do. If you... Did you want... Who did <coughs> you... Who was it? Oh, there was two of the lecturers who were there at the time. Yeah, they were they, they were they were terrific, but I still had to be filtered, so it became quite interesting then because I had to have a, a meeting with the head of the legal department, Franco Rizzuto, who's become a friend now, and he w- at the start again, like tends to happen with ex athletes, if you like, just that um, worry that oh, what's your ability to communicate with people? Yeah. Can can you hold a conversation? <laughs> yeah, I've been an athlete for sixteen years. Do you, do you possess the ability to sit down and hold a pen and little things like that so I sat with him and uh, he was he was incredible for me and as I say I'm extremely fortunate to have come across all the people in Edgehill that's where we met actually just think about it It was Edgehill wasn't it yeah yeah, yeah. so his position was it's going to take you six or seven years do you really think you're going to do it and I was like well yeah I think I think I'll do it I I want to and I did the football season finished everybody went off on holiday I went to Edgehill I did a six-week access course. I hadn't got an email address. I hadn't, I'd never... Yeah, the basic stuff you think Yeah, I'd been out of education, like, since I was 16. And um, basically, the fast-track course consisted of an introduction to law and developing academic skills, which I'm not sure I've got any of them yet, to be honest with you. But the course went really, really well, and I passed it. Well done. <laughs> I like to think so. Yeah, that, 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 that was a, without a any, twist in the pot. Yeah, without any bribery or corruption, and um, I, w- I was offered a place on the degree. So again, it, w- it was quite surreal because <clears throat> the fast track course finished, and pre-season had started at the club I was at at the time. Finished the course, went back into pre-season, but I, I, I had kind of known in my mind that the letter came to say that university was starting on the twenty sixth of September. So. I made a decision. I knocked football on the head completely and started my law degree. And so you completed your law degree at Edge Hill. Yep. With the um, with the great Richard Parrish. Yeah. No. They and, again, and things that I probably wouldn't have appreciated at the time, but they had such a sporting presence. Like I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of those that have been in sports law, if you like, from the start. But we talk about Mark James, Richard Parrish, yeah. Jack Anderson, people that we both respect greatly yeah, and like we're fortunate to be able to spend time with so 
yeah, Edge Hill was it was it was a really really good place to me and to be for me. And then, um, so when we when we've talked about this before, obviously, uh, well, and you've talked before, um, one of the really interesting components then, where does the case that you ended up having a cast case, right? Where does that fit into the timeline? Oh God, yeah, no. Well, whilst I was at Cork, so I think. I would have been player manager of Bohemians 2004 to 2006. It's really poor if you have to check your own Wikipedia page to find out whether something's right or not. But then 2007, I, I, signed, um, I signed for Cork City. And I've been, I was writing about it recently because I was trying to explain the case to somebody. So the long story short is we fell foul of the FIFA regulations in relation to the three-club rule and how that was written. So we signed for Cork in... February with a view to starting the football season in the March and <clears throat> there was no inkling of any potential or any reason why we would not be able to play and there was a tournament in place in Ireland at the time which was called the Satanta Cup and we travelled myself and Colin Healy was the guy who was involved it was we became part of the FIFA too as it was known but just before we were travelling to the game we were told there was a problem with our registration and we weren't allowed to play but it would all be sorted out so invariably, registration was refused, applied to FIFA, put in front of a sole judge, r- rejected again, and we ended up in a situation whereas seasons should have started in March, we were told that we wouldn't be able to play for the club until the 1st of July when the transfer window opened again because we had three clubs over and overlapping seasons. So it became quite strange because your first thought was, oh, well, hang on a second, people were fearful that the club may seek to frustrate the contracts because we couldn't honour them. Then we were told that wasn't a possibility. So it became how was how could we potentially appeal against that decision? So we managed to take the case to CAS with the help of the, the PFA, help fund it because it was a sort of area of particular interest given that players who, who may finish in one um, league and then travel somewhere else that they may fall foul of it. So we ended up having our day in court, if you like, in the June, which was pretty soon to when we could have been able to play anyway. But I remember going to Switzerland and traveling to Lausanne and then being at the court. And uh, it fascinated me because obviously I would have had a an involvement, if you like, not any with any legal knowledge per se, but just with regards to the construction of the case, the submissions that were put forward and then being there and within the environment, within the hearing, and seeing how it all worked. I was I was fascinated by it. And, and so um, the outcome of that case was? No, we put up a, we put up a terrific fight and got beaten 3-0. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, thought, we, thought we'd done, we thought we'd done terrifically well, <laughs> and I think within 20 minutes there was a phone call to say, all three judges have ruled against you. <laughs> <laughs> so I always say it's a pyrrhic victory because the, the law was changed afterwards. Oh, so congratulations. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Take, yeah so. take, take, take the W. Yeah, right? yeah, that's um, it. Um, Lose the battle to win the war. <laughs> so um, so we've had this, so you've got this cast case, right? So there's a bunch of different things and I want to sort of table this out for people, right? So you've obviously your playing career, you've had this almost c- close to a career-ending injury. Um, well, life-ending injury. Yeah, 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 yeah so. sorry, yeah. No, sorry. no, no, I'm not underplaying, I'm just <laughs> saying that it, I'm, I'm, you're talking these things up. Part <laughs> of fortunate to be part of ten percent that live from them. So yeah, that's crazy. It is. You, you don't wake up every morning, pull the curtains back, and look out and go, "Oh my God, look at the beautiful grass and cloud cover." But it does change your perspective, and it, for me, it was definitely a life changing. So you've had this life changing moment. You've had this interaction with Cass, where as a player you just wanted to play for a club, and then all of a sudden you can't, and then you had to end up in Switzerland. Obviously, the rules have been changed afterwards. 
you've started to have these issues where things that maybe you were told as a player haven't necessarily been true, the insurance cover, other arrangements that you've had in place, and now you've gone down this path of, of uh, this long path uh, of learning law. So fast forward then, you finish your law degree, uh, then what, you get a training contract? Yeah, straight into law. They did my um, LPC for a year, and then obviously looking at securing a training contract, but part of the thing in my mind was everybody had this natural... Um, inkling or thought that I would want to be a sports lawyer per se but one of my focuses with regards to the law was I was constantly reading and researching and looking at potentially finding a way of being able to seek redress to the people that I consider to be responsible for the financial situation I found myself in but not only me a lot of my former teammates um, peers and people that I would have played against over the years so, so you joined a white collar practice, yeah, uh, in um, in London, and then and then what? And then from so you did your training. Yeah, I trained at Peters and Peters, which was like a super firm to train at, and helped facilitate my sort of mindset towards the commercial litigation aspect of trying to be able to formulate and put a claim together. The firm they were very helpful because again, I think one of the things with me being a little bit older is that you don't fit into a particular box. At that time, you're not like a, being a mature student or a mature trainee. You're in a situation where your life experience means that you've probably followed a different track to the conventional trainee route where you'll be required to do certain things. I'd started to do a lot of work <coughs> on the independent FA football panels. And again, as a, they were very, very supportive how did, how of how that. How did that come about? Just, just uh, from the FA, something quite simple that the FA, I think at the time, not, not that they were getting criticism because of the format of the judicial panels but it was unusual in some ways to have somebody who had potentially a degree of legal knowledge but also coming from a football career and there's other people have done it Stuart Ripley's is yep. a, a brilliant lawyer and a brilliant guy who had been doing it before me Udo Anweri who played football as well who's a lawyer as well he's um he's terrific so I think there was kind of a shift within that and I'm, I'm fortunate I've been doing that for six years now so now all these things are starting to converge right so you're getting your expertise you've got this this as you would say seeking redress for how you were treated when you were a player and the advice that you got you've got your legal knowledge now you're getting trained up and simultaneously as all of this is is as as you've been investing all this time in your education and your professional practice into the public domain comes hmrc doing a whole bunch of investigations in relation to um film investments film tax partnerships yeah that was the primary area but it wasn't just limited to film tax partnerships because with regards to <coughs> financial services you had a cycle of products that were brought to market at a different period for people high net worth individuals and obviously we we, we fell foul of that so film tax partnerships were one of which there was property schemes then it became unregulated property schemes abroad and there was there's always a next product there's always the next product that there was the potential to put the guys into my contemporaries people to with regards to generating huge fees and commissions not really with the interest of the the client and it it's more nuanced because everybody will have their particular story but the point is it comes back to an athlete for footballer having a limited shelf life and the ability to play for only a period of time and the consequence of which when they finish we 
we've spoken and you're a huge um, supporter of transition mental health and well-being and the challenges that come and you, you speak to athletes all the time not just limited to football yeah. in any way but people that find that transition so difficult but then if you throw a number of grenades into that process it tends to accelerate some of the issues that they will face that if the financial side of their life had been taken care of as promised as presented it's possibly one less thing for them to deal with whilst trying to find a way and, that, and that's a, a different conversation about how difficult it can be because football to a degree I made my mistakes in my 20s I don't have regrets per se but I think with being ill I had to I made peace with the fact that it was done and I was able to move on and finding something I liked made that easier I think people who a large amount of their identity has been associated solely with what they did they find it more difficult and I, and I'm, I see more and more of that I, I say this we talked about this before I'm like Mr. Law in sport right for better or for worse not something I really wanted to be I didn't want to be so public in, the, in sort of my profile yeah but you've done uh, incredibly well with it thank you I was, I was fishing for a compliment <laughs> but they feeling totally inadequate <laughs> I, was, I always hate this when I speak to our former athletes yeah, there's like, no auto in, cues here yeah, we're yeah, obviously ad-libbing as yeah, we go yeah, yeah. Um, but the um uh, you know, having not achieved the athletic success I would have liked, uh, I'll take that compliment gladly. No, but uh, in joking aside, though, I can see just quick, quickly we got something. If you put your life and soul into something, they can become your identity. Something I'm very live to in terms of what I'm doing. Let alone, like I said, we're small fry. There's not much public attention on what we do. It's a very niche market. If you have loads of people watching what you're doing, reinforcing that identity all the time, I can just I can only imagine the the how that becomes so ingrained in your DNA, right? And because even if you don't believe it yourself initially, you will start to believe it, right, over time. Because every time you pick up the newspaper, now with 24 hours news cycle, now on Twitter, uh, Instagram and stuff. So, Well, it's like no other world, Sean, because you, you, you talk about that career, that finite period of playing, but it started before then. In, in now we're talking about like from seven or eight, yeah, absolutely. people are pinning all their hopes to the fact that they're going to be a professional athlete based on the fact that they've been invited to an academy at seven. Mm. And so their parents. Or yeah, the absolutely. So them. all of those things can become a problem. So as I say, the, the, I still love the game and the game hasn't changed. But fundamentally, what's grown up around it and what's developed now has just become, it's uh, it's crazy. And so so basically what you're talking about with these schemes, and it, I believe there's some ongoing stuff with this at the moment. Yeah, there's, a, there's an ongoing, there's a, a case ongoing. It was, it was to go to trial at the end of last year, but it was... Um, it was adjourned because there was two further applications, so it's hoped that it will go to trial this year. But those those particular schemes, if you like, it's a huge issue ongoing for people, some of whom have the ability to recover, some of whom never will. And so, so putting this into context, uh, and maybe you've already said this clearly enough already, essentially what you've got is people advising football players, both as either financial advisors or sometimes not even financial advisors, uh, advising full players to invest in certain schemes that seem very attractive with the promise of, of significant rewards in which in these schemes, essentially they've been viewed as being uh, evading tax. Yeah, but to, but to again, you've picked up, it was never presented as that in the first place. And the challenge we have at the moment is that everybody looks at today. The point is these schemes started to be sold in the late 90s. So there was a period of seven years between kind of 97, 98, all the way through to 2005, where the industry sold these 
as part and parcel of... Absolutely. So it was never presented as a tax avoidance. Tax avoidance and tax evasion weren't even on people's radar then without getting into the so detail the of it. The is the, the, that's how they're being, as you rightly yeah. said, they're being viewed now. But the time for the for a lot for the athletes, and I say this from, from the lawyer's perspective, if someone says, hey, this is a lawyer, they don't go, oh, does this guy really know it? Or, or woman, sorry, the person doesn't know what they're talking about. They, do they have the relevant skill set? Oh, they're a criminal lawyer, but do they actually know anything about, yeah. about contracts? Well, we, wouldn't have, we, we possibly wouldn't have had those skills to be able to, and we, and we operate and we operated and it's very much still the case now football is based on trust absolutely and that's what I was trying to get to you may not be able to penetrate that even now because you can recognise those relationships that you probably went through yourself so it's very very difficult but the problem being when you get to the end game and you're the person left carrying all of the liability and the debt and you look behind you to see where all of these people your friends they're not there anymore so I say this you know even in, in business that the same type of approach is applied you know people have got various accountants for example who are very aggressive with their approach right to operating their businesses and I keep saying to other people in the say let's say the entrepreneur scene that seems like quite an aggressive approach are you sure you want to take that approach because it may become a problem in years to come but they just say well everyone else is doing it so we're going to do it and you can see that power of the crowd and in football I think that's exemplified if one person does it yeah that everyone starts to follow yeah. so but the, the, the point around that which is again just for clarity was that you were dealing with people that had a particular risk profile and with regards to the suitability, <coughs> irrespective of what was presented, it was always going to be suitable because it was in the better interests of the people giving the advice rather in the best interests of the athletes. And I think that's one of the big issues that gets lost sometimes still in the media is that there's always this, like you said, it's presented as tax Tax evasion. Tax avoidance. Yeah. Well, tax tax evasion is criminal. Tax avoidance. And it was never presented or sold as that. And I think as the media and narrative around these things has evolved over the years, now we're looking at a situation where everybody was a tax avoider. And that wasn't the case. So we got so now you start doing this case, then you leave Peters and Peters and you get Yeah. Peters and Peters as a training contract experience was incredible. You talk about different things. My first day at Peters and Peters was a an Interpol red notice. My my second day was a proceeds of crime. Yeah, amazing. Court of appeal hearing. I thought it was like the new boy. I thought this was they're just giving me a novel to read. Like this isn't it isn't real. It was it was quite surreal. So I spent obviously a year within business crime, which again they have an incredibly strong practice and some incredibly talented people there. And then I spent the second year in commercial litigation, which is where I had kind of saw myself anyway. And then I did a three months secondment at Everton which was incredibly strange, having been at Everton as a footballer to be returning as a trainee lawyer. Yeah, it was incredible, incredible. Because again, I think people have a perception of how you will be. And for me, it was just, it was an incredible opportunity to go back into the club I supported, which I supported as a boy. I played for them and now I was sitting in the the legal department. And I feel like my first week at Everton was uh, Wayne Rooney coming back from Manchester United and the biggest transfer of that window which was Romelu Lukaku moving to um, Manchester United so I had exposure to all of these things so it was and and I was and I was home and I think that was one of the biggest issues for me was within my training contract what was difficult was obviously you were traveling yeah yeah traveling every week especially with a family so I think in a football career you tend to move around but when you get settled it's very difficult to ask your family to do that again um and fast forward now you're at Bermans. Yeah, Bermans in Liverpool. I've been there for coming up to two years. Oh, amazing. And um, your practice now is, well, you do the mixture, you do the FA stuff, 
you do obviously you've got this ongoing case well the case is ongoing and that's still being dealt with by Peters and Peters and hopefully they will be successful with that I'm still a claimant in that action but there's obviously offshoots and other cases of a similar ilk that I'm involved in now and and in in the interim period because you didn't have enough on you did UEFA Masters no that's no and again brilliantly bring that up what I looked at was, and again, I you have somebody who'd been out of education for 16 years and you talk about an education journey and I'm incredibly passionate about learning and also, like you would be, positive to try and um, incentivize people because it's like, well, if I can do it, anybody can do it. So when someone had looked at the education journey from me, people had said, well, where? You do your degree, you qualified as a lawyer and like obviously the next natural progression is a master's. So a friend of mine put me on to the UEFA Masters for International Players and said, this is a course, you might want to have a look and research a little bit more. And then I managed to get on that course. Was that an Irishman? Well, it was, yeah. Was yeah, it yeah. an Irish academic, when he chance? <laughs> no. no yeah, 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 yeah. There was a few people <laughs> involved, but the first person that made me aware of it. So As I say, it's just Sean Hamill at Burbeck. Yeah, no, yeah, no, Sean, Sean, I met Sean through the course and he's incredible and he was incredibly supportive. He, he's a friend and, yeah, I can't speak highly it's enough of him, but the point being that the UEFA Masters is a course, uh, especially for former international footballers in the management and administration of football. So, again... That was twenty month course. We graduated in and November. How many, how many, how many former players? Because a real mixture of players. That was well. twenty four. Twenty four people to, were on that cohort. So it was a. Uh, it's a great course from what I hear. Yeah, really. incredible, incredible, and people that have had incredible footballing careers, and again getting to the end, but also taking the responsibility of trying to upskill themselves with regard to what what their next step is going to be. So everyone will say it about the courses they do, but I was incredibly fortunate because I met some incredible people. I met some friends. And had a fabulous experience with it. So again, you're back to that positive learning environment. It takes away that fear for people because we were, I was speaking at something last Friday and we were talking about how difficult it can be because you can have had a football career where you can play in front of 50, 60, 70,000 people and not bat an eyelid. Whereas if somebody says you need to do a PowerPoint presentation, they're going to run out of the room and never come back again. And then you have a situation <laughs> where and I, I had it myself, you always have your go-to place with regards to being petrified of having to speak in front of people. And when I was, I always say to people, when I took over the managerial job at Bohemians, I had to go and speak to players and all the staff on the first morning. And I'd rehearsed it in my head about how I was going to be able to do it. And I went into the meeting and my voice tended to operate between one of the chipmunks and Barry White. I had no control over it. And the more I spoke, the worse it got. <laughs> so I had to call the meeting off immediately to say, right, I'll speak to everybody on an individual basis outside. But that was like my go-to place. So th- to see everybody's kind of development over the term of the course, people, as I say at the start... They've not been exposed to it, right? No, so no, it's no, a, so no. So it's the same as when you go for the academy set up and you go for the leagues. Yeah. And I say this... Yeah, but it comes back to being in the right environment to be able to do those things so that people incredibly respectful of what people have done before but then recognizing that everybody needs not 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 so much a push but the importance of that environment to help people learn you need that as you say that supportive environment where you can be encouraged to do it and i think sometimes it can be shocking uh it has been for me meeting people like yourself meeting other top athletes who are incredibly uh shy and self-conscious about doing things which 
you just take for granted that they would not give a second thought to like for example addressing a room but it's context specific right? yeah absolutely like, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think a, a level of humility within that as well so as I say the, the course was um, five seven um, seven five day sessions across European footballing cities and we did a one of our modules in the US which was incredible and then we obviously had to prepare managerial report dissertation and then present that so it was a it was, it was a fabulous course and at the graduation it's it's done incredibly well because we graduated we were the second cohort whilst the third cohort were doing their first session and I we kind of we were all talking about how we remembered being sat at the back while the first cohort graduated thinking god we're never going to get here like look what they've done it's amazing and th- and now we've done it so again from that educational point to complete a master's was like incredibly uh like proud to, to have done yeah, it absolutely, so man. and it's and amazing. and to have met the people i met on it and everything that's come with that it's uh it's been a really really good thing and the reason why I wanted to talk about that one, I think it's impressive that you've done it. So congratulations again on that. Um, it's been a pleasure to watch this journey go over the last few years. No, thank you. Go. And then to go <coughs> full circle, I want to come back in a bit though to your area of focus and research, the thing that matters to you, people could have probably told about athlete welfare. You then get appointed as a CAS arbitrator. So all these years later, after you've had that, all these years, when you first went to CAS, that you didn't think the call arbitration for sports, so let's say that you you know, we're wondering what this is about, you know, it's been so inquisitive, and now you're on the list of arbitrators. I think the thing with becoming a lawyer was um, we all have strong opinions, and I think the thing I wanted to try and get from it was the ability to learn how to think and to be um, to have clarity of thought. As I say, my life had changed with regards to my illness and how fortunate I am, and I, I'm still learning every, every day. But um, th- with regards to you have role models when you're a young guy, wanting to be a footballer and like I supported Everton so the people that I revered were people that were playing for Everton then and I think you get to a second career and I've been incredibly fortunate to where I've, I've got to because I found something I liked but I still find myself in some of the cases sat there thinking the quality of some of the advocates who will be appearing in front of you QCs the quality of the people you sit with thinking like how how have I ended up here so with regards to that kind of development second career I had always in my mind thought I would love to um, become a CAS arbitrator could you imagine having full circle of being in front of a panel yeah. of CAS arbitrators to then actually become one so for that to happen last year and again and I think it's a credit to CAS I say this sorry I think it's a credit to CAS as well though for trying to get more former players not uh, just former players athletes athlete or people and different lawyers. experiences yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so so for me I am respectful of CAS. I went to the first conference. I found it an incredible experience, but like anything, you have so to... So that's the CAS, that's the conference for yeah, the arbitrators, Yes, right? yeah, for sorry, yeah. And you um, you start at the bottom and you have to build your reputation and try and demonstrate to people that you're capable and good at what you do. So I'm I'm hugely excited about that. And so there's two 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 final things, because I'm conscious of time, but the there's two... People oh, will oh, have fallen People will have fallen asleep see, by now yeah. anyway. So but also right. people go, oh God, no. He no, says, the, the, says two final things and yeah, it means eight. Honestly, I've recognised <laughs> that. But the other giggle with that is if there's somebody sat in a train or a bus or whatever and they're having a laugh, at least they can empathise when people are looking at them thinking they're crazy on the bus. <laughs> what are they laughing at? Sean Cottrell's last eight finalies <laughs> before we get to where we're going. And normally, the worst thing is I edit out about 20 of them. <laughs> <laughs> but the, yeah, um, with your area of focus of your master's research, and your 
your co- the cases you're you're involved with as a claimant and as an advocate and the stuff that you care about you and I would say rather bravely came out and did an interview with David Conn from the Guardian who's an outstanding journal- sports journalist well, Dave, David falls under the category of role model for me yeah. because he's a, a purveyor of truth we talk about investigative journalism he's um one of a few left I think yes but but exceptional and I've got huge respect for him so yeah last year we did a uh, number of stories around Aston Villa it wasn't primarily to be about me but obviously there was three stories which tied in and then there was an investigation and there was the outcome of the investigation so so again you're too, being too humble about this so 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 I know you personally so I'm going to call it for what it is right so I can say this um you know, you're you're a very shy guy in, in this regards, right? You don't like the public spotlight, and I obviously had spoken to you about a whole bunch of different things around your career. Uh, you know, you 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 know, you, you, the, the, your injury and everything else. I hadn't known about this before, and I didn't you know, necessarily think that it's my right to know. But no, I but no, but what it, it, it yeah. hadn't come up in conversation. No. Yet. we'd had all these conversations around athlete welfare, about mental health. It's pretty much our go-to topic. A lot of it had coincided with. Um, Andy Woodworth coming forward and speaking about his time at um, crew with Barry Bennell and then obviously Steve Walters, Gary Cliff, different people followed. So it was it was linked to it all about all so, of so that. So it was a real shift, right? So so, but my point was I knew you and I thought oh, if Gareth's come out and said something to David Conn, this must be quite serious because you know, you must need to do something because you're not the type of person we spoke about this before because I'd always said to you why don't you do more public speaking why don't you you know give your opinion what you're saying is really well informed no but you've you've been hugely supportive of me and I and I greatly appreciate that but I think it takes you a while to find your voice but on this one though right the outcome was that the person got removed from Aston Villa eventually or, or agreed to go um, and there was an investigation right it led to an investigation my point is like how did you feel about you know coming out so, so for those people we want to fill in people who are listening who don't know right so your experience was when you were at Aston Villa there was this guy this this coach coach yeah who was essentially from I understand it was right but essentially bullying in, the, in their sort of mentality and I know you, you, you and I think people would have picked up from the podcast you're quite a strong individual like as in terms of what you've achieved what you've overcome people would identify as that but reading what you were said to David obviously that that caused essentially depression for you right and caused anxiety and at the time at Aston Villa yeah, yeah, yeah. Inc- incredible incredible uh, challenges and, 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 o- and you weren't the only one no 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 not at all but I think you can, it's easier to talk about now because you possibly have the ability to articulate what it was I think at that time I had very little understanding of how I felt what it was and how to deal with any of it so it was in, it was incredibly difficult time because again there's a, a perception if you like that you were living the Vida Loca you were breaking through as a first team player at Aston Villa playing for your country you're you're living the life whereas the reality was at that time it was anything but that and yeah incredibly dark and incredibly difficult and I didn't have the skills to be able to one recognize what was how I felt what it was and then two how to deal with it and that was the challenge because you look back at I was a professional athlete who was exhausted all the time and I couldn't fi- I could I couldn't figure out what's up behind it. So again, it becomes a different conversation because that was that time. In truth, I never really carried it because I'd managed to move on and I'd put it behind me comfortably. There's always probably a, a DNA or a fabric related to that, but that again comes back to learning about yourself and becoming more present and aware about how your mind works and why. So again, that was probably that um, evolution or awakening, if you like, probably 
came to me after I was ill. But the point being that that particular story was that I remember reading a piece that David had written about Aston Villa where their a parent had taken an investigation, a complaint against the club and at every door had found um, resistance. Yeah, resistance and difficulty and he'd, he'd battled on and he'd gone through <coughs> incredible challenges and taken his complaint all the way to the Premier League and the Premier League actually made a finding of bullying at the club and I struggled to process that. How, as opposed to dealing with it in a particular way, that individual was then promoted within the club. It was surreal to think that there's people will have known about all of these things for such a period of time. You've had an investigation, but the investigation has actually resulted in that individual being moved into a position which was higher up. And for me then, I'd also, a few years ago, and backfilling the story for anybody who's still listening, was the fact that a friend of mine had come to me and spoken about how he had been sexually abused at that club in the late 80s. So for me, I was really, really struggling to deal with, well, hang on, late 80s, and now we're still talking about... How much is the reform? 20, yeah, yeah. yeah. So over a 30-year ti- timeline, you had situation where people like this were able to operate with impunity, were protected, were promoted, and nobody really dealt with it. So there's a hypocrisy to professional sport anyway that we've spoken about before, about... Uh, cosmetic and aesthetic everybody thinks it's fabulous but yet what sits behind that is anything but that and that was why David and I had had a conversation about it and the plan had always been as I would as I would talk to you that there was other people that he was going to speak to and he spoke to them and they they were they're incredible guys and they've gone on to do so well in their careers subsequent to their football career but when David said to give the story credibility or the standing it deserves those guys would have to come forward they weren't in a position at that time to be able to do that so David and I were back to a situation where we went well how can we how are we going to do it and he said well will you do it and again that was never really what I wanted no but I spoke to my I spoke to my family and I kind of said I'm going to do it so David and I arranged to meet in Manchester one afternoon similar to this he put the I said to him, like, Are you ready? I'm gonna give you this is exactly how it was and we spoke for hours. And was that cathartic for you or cathartic, yeah. C- cathartic, emotional, bringing you back over different things that you hadn't thought about for quite a long time. But it sort of maybe with starting to learn the law and develop a degree of analytical skills, you were able to kind of roadmap a particular strategy for how you wanted that to play out and develop and as I say David did three incredible pieces first piece was about my experience which I knew people would turn around and go oh here we go ex-footballer full of rubbish who's going to believe him it's just because he's a lawyer now he's looking for profile and then but there was second piece was that other people who'd had a similar experience had come forward again uh, brilliant guys guys that I have huge respect for and it were incredibly brave to do that (coughs) and then the third piece focused on the investigation and what that parent had been through, which is a, a journey, if you like, a lot of parents are experiencing, be it through academies or be it through their own footballing experience. But that's a story in the world of Hollywood we live in that people don't want to see or hear. Yeah, so absolutely. they were, all of those people were incredible. And that then triggered 
an investigation and an independent barrister being appointed by the club to undertake an investigation. But even that process wasn't straightforward because there was a number of undertakings that were required before I would commit to the investigation. So it, it, it was, I had tremendous support at the time from lots of, lots of people, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't about me. And it was more to try and get to the outcome that we did get to. But what fascinated me about that was um, it's in, football is an incredibly competitive environment. And you're talking about less than 1% that actually go on to play at that level. It's hard enough without finding yourself in an environment with a destructive individual that can affect that development. So you're back to like law, like opportunity, like different things we can talk about. You live or die by the quality of the people you meet at a given time. So all a lot of those people I met, they're, despite the success they've achieved outside of their footballing career, they're still... Uh, point in their mind where they still asking like maybe or like was I could I have made it yeah. and and that and that was the thing that upset me the most because I would say it to anybody is that don't try not to even think like that because the point is if you'd been in a different environment which was a growth environment development as an individual environment and a positive environment that outcome may have been different and I think that's one of the things that now as I get a bit older you identify I'm still involved in football. I still see how it works and how it's changed. And there's things that you can possibly identify now that you would have been totally oblivious to when you were young because the counterpoint to that is we can talk philosophically about athletes and transition and welfare. But when you're young, someone we stand in front of a young guy who's and we say to him, listen, this is what it could be like. Maybe 1% will make it. You know that that lad and his parents are going, well, this conversation doesn't apply to me because I'm part of the 1%. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but do you not think, uh, I, you know, obviously with, you know, do a lot in terms of career progression and development in law, the same thing applies in law. There's people who uh, you know, come into law at a young age and they see certain things. They go, is this normal? Is this appropriate practice for, for a law? Well, they've got no idea because they're just so keen to make sure they're successful. And particularly if they're going for a training contract or pupillage at a barrister's chambers. Um, I hope that the, makes sense. No, Does no, that make sense? Absolutely that, so makes just sense. Just to try and no, no, present it that way. No, no, so no, as no. I say... So what's, what recommendations then? If there was things that you could change, right? If you had a magic wand, right? Given and you're, You love football, right? You are football... I love the game. You love the game. I love the game. And you'd also like a lot of the people in it. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah, yeah. Right. Some, some incredible yeah. people. So that, there is the, the reality is there is no magic wand. There isn't going to be a magic wand. And, and, and the question you've asked me, the question you've asked me is a really, really good one because, again, sometimes it's very easy to stand up and be talking about everything that's wrong or different elements like that. I think within a lot of the areas I work in, so be it dealing with agents, talk about the miscellaneous element of the litigation practice, but obviously within football and football's own jurisdiction, one of the areas I think that's maybe going to improve now, and I'm hopeful of that, is investigation and enforcement. And I think that has to go beyond, again, slight touch, purely an administrative system that th you, you get to a situation where there's going to be teams, departments or units that will be actively going out and investigating these people. Because some of the stuff that's going on and some of the stuff I see on a day-to-day -day basis, people have no understanding of. And I think that's, that's the challenge is that if you're going to go after it to... Um, promote best practice that's where I see things will hopefully change and become more robust over the next period of time and what would you like to see if anything would you like to see from the advisory point of view or like you know would you like you know the, the PFA do stuff but is there anything more we could do to bolster sort of helping the uh, players because 
this is an issue not in, in the men's game now, but in the women's game, obviously it's just growing. It's going to be, you're just going to start to see those type of issues crop up across the, across the yeah. board. Yeah, I think understanding the, the landscape and how it works. And as I say, we talk about those relationships now, financial advisors and agents are happening younger and younger. I think we can talk about it's buzzwords, education, visibility, um, people understanding that there may be somebody independent that they can go and talk to. And I'm, I'm doing a lot of work around that now, actually, around a situation where there's somebody independent that even the person you're working with at the moment would not be adverse to you seeing because a lot of the people, they act as gatekeepers as to who they're willing to open up their network to or not. But w even within that independent person, if they're operating to best practice and they're comfortable in their business, they're going to be happy for you to speak to somebody independent because in some ways it will act as a kite mark for them. The reality is, and the reality of what we know is that's not necessarily the case and there will always be a reluctance to that because it's a game of money now and that money and that currency has become, has has moved down. There's value in young people. There's incredible value in that. And we, we talk about the complexity of a professional career. And sorry, I'm not to talk, but it, it's an important point is that when I played, and I think I was extremely fortunate to play with some exceptional players, World Cup winners, I had an incredible time. And I think it was a really, really good time to play. And those people enjoyed what I would consider to be careers the reality now is you can earn huge sums of money without ever even having to play a game we talk about mental health again you can have a situation where the best contract you earn in your life is at 18 19 20 and you may never play a game you may have a situation where you break into a first team for four games and you get the biggest contract of your career and you'll never play after that because you'll drift down it's it's such an incredible environment it's like no other world so you're never not faced with challenge and distraction and temptation. So the football is always the easiest part. Yeah, so I think that, so what I'm taking though from this is just how do we deal with the competing pressures, conflicts across the board because that same type of rationale around the players also gets cooped in into the agents who profiteer or uh, or have some have very good businesses and do very good advisory work. But if they've got that, Again, they don't necessarily have certainty over when they're also going to get remunerated, so it trickles down the system. Finally, and it was two, so that was that was that was one and then two. Finally, if you were going to give advice to a former player athlete who's thinking they've got an interest in law or even into another professional services area, or accounting, finance, or anything for that matter, what sort of advice would you give to them or to your younger self? Have the confidence to go for it. I think one of the things with being a mature student or that little bit older is you're not afraid to ask questions. I think that's probably one of the things that, and a lot of those people are quite humble anyway. So you can you can do it. If I, if I can do it, anybody can do it. But I think the point that sits behind that is that take your time and like pressure, there's different levels of pressure. But the point being that it's very, very difficult to reconcile being a footballer on the 8th of May and then on the 9th of May never being able to do that again and it, it, it it's quite challenging and it, ta it takes a lot for people to maybe come through that first part and then there's a degree of um, testing and like trying to see what you may be suited to there's a natural progression coaching which again at an academy level it's basically starting from zero again to try and learn and develop a different skill set um, the punditry there's only so many pundits it's incredibly competitive and again you've got it's not a hierarchical structure within that but obviously there's different people at different levels so it becomes a challenge but it's trying to find what 
what you may be suited to or something that you may you may enjoy doing like i say like i still find it incredibly challenging there's days where you're sat in the office reading documents and i think i've read this document eight times and i've taken in two words and it it does it's it's never not without challenge but again i i think i'm lucky with the people i've met and the fact that i i do like it and then you may get a sports call that means you're going to be involved in a particular case at a particular time that is stimulating and gets you moving and thinking in a different area so for me is people engage with you all the time it's nothing is easy you you know that but I don't think you should be purely defined by a professional career I think there's opportunity but again I think you need to be strategic as to how you look to set that out so 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 the main thing would be then you're saying be confident for a start so so first of all and get over the inertia of I'm a footballer I'm an athlete don't do so do something right if you feel like you would like to do it give it a go once you've got over that barrier then be strategic in terms of if this is what I want to do or you know if I need more knowledge or information start to look back and look for advice maybe from the from people or anyone really because it comes back to the confidence yeah but the the difficulty with that is dependent on the individual and the profile they've had people are more likely to take a call from them at the start and i think that that's making that first step again and having that initial confidence to go listen i'm i'm putting myself out on a limb here to a degree but i think i would be quite interested in doing this could you help me how how do i go how would i go about this so again i'm not i'm not a prophet in relation to any of these things. Do you know what I mean? It's you told me at the start of the interview, we wouldn't have done this. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I think it's really interesting. But I think the thing for me is that at the moment is like, I want you want you want to help. I get I get my fix or I get my positivity, if you like, out of helping people. And, and, and I want that to continue. And I think there's a positivity around that because then you never get that same feeling of being on a football pitch and everything that goes with that. But there's, there's something positive about helping people and seeing people progress and do well and I think that's that's that's, uh, that's something that is very very uh, poignant for me and if you can help somebody then it can't but be a positive thing well on that point we'll finish the podcast and I just want to say again like congratulations on everything you've done post-career. oh listen i'm still i'm Cause, still cause I, like i said i've known you since you were training and uh i said it's just been awesome to see how much one effort you've put in your hunger for learning and what you've achieved post-career like i said i think if anyone is listening who's a, a former player former athlete it shows you what you can do with focus attention it shows that there's demand for people with skill set who have played at the highest level and that they obviously are good lawyers as well yeah no that's 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 an important part of it as well well done no thanks thanks for all your support no thank you well sadly that's all we have time for for this show but remember for all the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport go to lawandsport.com find us on twitter soundcloud itunes facebook linkedin pretty much most platforms you can think about Um, obviously go to lawandsport.com sign up to our weekly email find out about all the latest things we're up to other than that thanks so much for tuning in